You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, we're going to talk about that new paper that just came out um, that focuses on Go and using machine learning to solve to solve Go. Can you solve a game? Yeah. Well, I don't. I you know I wouldn't say the game is necessarily solved until uh, you know essentially you're guaranteed to win. So some games are solved. I think like you know tic tac toe is solved. <laughs> checkers. Uh, Go is not solved in that sense. But what's very exciting is that the game of Go now has a uh, there is a computer Go player that is competitive with professionals. Mm-hmm. And it's been the case for years that Go was, it was not possible to build a program to play Go that was even competitive with a strong amateur. Mm. So this represents a very significant jump. And the, uh, the paper came out in Nature, and it uh, was written by the folks at Google DeepMind. And it has as its kind of centerpiece um, the result that the computer Go program called AlphaGo beat the European champion Go player uh, five out of five times. That's pretty impressive. So this is a pretty impressive result. Um, it There is the sort of caveat that the European Go player is not considered generally very close to being the strongest Go player in the world, hmm. um, that Asia contains the strongest Go players, and I believe there are some amateurs who, who are perhaps stronger than, than him. Nevertheless, this is a tremendous accomplishment, and it's a huge jump in, um, in computer Go uh, capabilities. So let me first start out by explaining a little bit about what the game of Go is and why this is an interesting result. Go is a game that's played on a 19 by 19 grid. It's a full information game between two players with no element of randomness. So that is to say that there's no secrets that each of the player has, like say in poker, and there's no, um, there's no random components. Essentially the game consists of alternating between the players where each of them places either a black or a white stone on the board. In general, the stones don't move once they're placed on the board. And the objective is to capture territory, to surround territory on the board. And whoever has the most territory at the end wins. Capturing results and removing the stones, that's the only time a a stone sort of goes on the board, might come off or go to a different place. Ultimately, as I said, they go back and forth and you're trying to surround the opponent's stones with your stones and then then claim that territory. And, And it's kind of a, considered in a sense in an equivalence class, um, with chess in that it takes a long time to learn and get good at it. There are professionals and rankings among the very best players, and it, it's a kind of an, an intellectual enterprise to learn to learn the game and to play it well. One thing in the coverage that I thought was interesting was that this was described as being much more complicated than chess because you have thousands more permutations of gameplay than you could ever have with chess. That's right. That's, that's exactly why it's resisted having very good computer players so far. So... The way to think about it is when you try to play a game, uh, that is when a computer tries to play a game, it's most often framed in terms of a tree of possible game states. Every layer of the tree sort of alternates between each player. At each level, this tree sort of branches according to the, uh, the different possible moves available to that player. And then as you go down, then the sort of the depth of the tree is determined by the total number of moves that might appear in the game. That is to say, the kind of the length of the game before uh, a winner is determined. Often when we try to solve a game formally, then you can think of this as, for example, a mini-max type procedure in which I'm trying to make moves that sort of maximize the probability of me winning and minimize the probability of my opponent winning. So now we can, by viewing game playing through a tree, we can think about how large the tree is as being a measure of how challenging the game is. And so there are two components. There's one is the branching factor. So how many branches does any given sort of level of the tree have? And then how deep does the tree tend to go? 
and Go ha is bigger along both dimensions. So rather than there being sort of a few dozen possible moves at any given uh, at any given time, there are hundreds of possible moves available, and many more moves are required. Many more turns are required to reach the end of the game. And since these both have sort of exponential effects on the number of possible sort of variants of the game, then it's much, much harder to actually enumerate them all in order to uh, determine you know, a good move for a computer Go player. So the approach that AlphaGo takes has several different dimensions to reduce both the number of available moves effectively at any given moment, and then also to try to rapidly search through the sort of the depth of, the, the depth of this tree. The first thing is this idea of uh, deciding, rather than looking at all the hundreds of moves that are available at any given moment, how do we look at a reduced set of kind of realistic and viable moves? For that, DeepMind, uh, the researchers who wrote this paper, they looked at about 30 million games, I think, played by high-level players, and they got good at predicting, given the current board state, what of the legal moves available in the next iteration tend to be taken. And for that, they used a convolutional neural network, which is a, has been very successful in taking kind of grids of pixels and things like that and turning them into labels. And here they did the same kind of idea, but grids of stones on a Go board and, um, and predicting what of the, the next moves are, um, are sort of realistic moves. So that pruned the potential uh, branches of the tree by a lot. And then the next thing they did was to think about uh, what kind of so-called policies might be good for, uh, for actually deciding what, um, you know, what move would eventually lead to a, uh, a high-quality board state. So this gets at something else that is prevalent in computer game playing and that is also a representative of why Go is challenging. So there's this notion of the value of a particular board state. Uh, that is, it's a function essentially where somebody might look at a board and say, oh, looks like it looks like white has a stronger position, is more likely to win than black, given two people kind of of the same strength playing the game out. Other games, the, their structure makes it possible to have pretty good value functions. We're just looking at a snapshot of the board, you have a pretty good idea of, of sort of who's ahead. So in chess, there's this notion of essentially kind of counting the pieces according to different scores and um, being able to assess kind of who's, who's in a stronger position. Even if you don't have much chess experience, if one person has a queen and the other one doesn't, then you might immediately guess that the person who has the queen has a stronger, has a, sort of a stronger situation. Therefore, that board state might have a higher value for that person. Go really resists this kind of thing because of this notion of territory. It's very complicated where the, uh, you know, it's very global and the stones hang together in a way that makes it challenging to decide whether or not a board state is an advantageous one in the absence of actually kind of imagining how it would be played out. And in fact, uh, a lot of the way that Go is practically scored does not actually end up with the players really placing all of the stones into all the territory, but both players sort of make an inference about what's very likely to happen to decide who wins and who loses. And, it's, and it has a kind of a protocol by which if there's any sort of uncertainty about that, then they can continue playing. And then eventually at some point, far before the game is sort of technically won, one of the other the players resigns. Uh, this is something that, that uh, experienced Go players can you know, get very good at evaluating but is very, has been very hard for computers. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that if you kind of flip a single stone um, somewhere on the board, it, it's possible that it could have a dramatic effect on the score. It could completely change uh, a losing position to a winning position just by changing one stone out of potentially hundreds. 
And that effect is very dramatic in contrast to, to chess, where chess can have subtle, uh, subtle changes have a big impact on the board, but in general, even sort of counting the pieces gives you some information, pretty good information about the value. And Go just does not have that, that property in general. By using the, this, uh, this supervised approach, and then combining that with a large amount of self-play, where the network would play sort of earlier versions of itself, it, uh, it built up a, an ability to essentially to assess uh, you know, value and kind of to, to build a policy for playing that at that point after that training was already competitive with the best existing computer Go players uh, that used different kinds of techniques. And then at this point, they then looked to some of these other kinds of ideas, in particular an idea called Monte Carlo Tree Search, in which one plays a very large number of games and tries to assess the value positions by summarizing a particular move by all the kind of by a random sampling of things that might happen after making that move. So then the combination of, of um, its supervised approach, this kind of value network approach, and then finally this, this uh, Monte Carlo tree search, all of these pieces together led to quite a large jump in, in capabilities. And so it is certainly the strongest computer Go player that, um, that anyone knows of and, um, and really jumped ahead in terms of, um, you know, in terms of what um, the kinds of human players it's competitive against. As I said, it's still somewhat uncertain whether it is uh, the same level of achievement as, as beating Gary Kasparov, uh, who was arguably sort of the greatest chess player, uh, certainly the, gra- you know, the greatest living chess player at the time and possibly the greatest ever. The, the player that AlphaGo beat is a, not of that level. Um, however, my impression is that they have arranged to play the sort of reigning world champion or the, the sort of the, the person who is largely considered the best player, uh, the best living player in March, I think the sort of like a million dollar stakes or something like that. Uh, so that'll be very exciting uh, to see what happens. I think it's one of these cases, it's one of these situations where you really don't know what's going to happen. So there's different arguments on why, um, you know, why uh, the human will certainly win or why the computer will certainly win. We didn't get a, you don't get a lot of information about the relative strengths of the players because AlphaGo won five to zero. You might expect that if the human had taken one game off of the off of the AlphaGo player, then we would say certainly the very best player in the world will beat it. People have spent a lot of time already analyzing the play style. Uh, some experts in Go have been sort of interested in that it seems to you know they they ha- they are happy to kind of. Uh, Sort of anthropomorphize the go play, the the computer go player to say that it's it seems to be sort of play like a human in particular with a kind mm. of Japanese style which I, I find uh, I have no experience to evaluate but I find it, I find it to be sort of interesting as people have really started to take a, a very close look so it's an exciting it's an incredibly exciting time this is something that I think many experts believe would not be solved for uh, you know sort of on the order of at least another another decade. So can't wait to see how, it, how uh, AlphaGo fares against, against uh, the most elite competition in the world. We'll have more about AlphaGo and the paper that released it and a couple of videos where you can see AlphaGo play on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question comes from Rafael Lima. He asks, can you talk more about Gaussian processes as used to apply to classifications? Thanks. Yeah, so in episode two of this season, we talked about Gaussian processes in general, and we focused on the idea of using them for regression. And the idea there is that we uh, are essentially trying to predict a real valued number. That is the function's range is the real line. But classification is, of course, a very important thing that we do with machine learning algorithms, and that's often 
the thing that people most think of in the context of, of machine learning, particularly supervised machine learning, is trying to decide whether something's a cat or a dog or between two or more classes. Gaussian processes can be used for classification and frequently are. They're appealing because they uh, are a way to, uh, to do non-parametric Bayesian classification and hopefully get nicely calibrated probabilities about uh, one class versus the other. And this is in contrast to other kinds of kernel-based classification like support vector machines, which are a very close cousin, but in general don't have a probabilistic interpretation. People have nevertheless, of course, try to find useful ways to, to extract probabilities from SVMs, but Gaussian processes do it natively because essentially they're using the, you know, the concept of a likelihood to, uh, to map from the latent function to, its, uh, you know, to the class label between 0 and 1. So there's a couple different ways to do Gaussian process classification. They look a lot like the relationship between, say, linear regression and logistic regression. In linear regression, we fit straight lines to real-valued numbers. And in logistic regression, what we're doing is sort of taking that straight line and mapping it through what's called a sigmoid function, most commonly the logistic function. And that is something that essentially maps the numbers from the real line to the interval between 0 and 1, where we interpret 0 as being that there's no chance that, say, we see a dog, and one as being 100% uh, chance that we see a dog instead of, instead of a cat. And so then we directly interpret that as the probability, the conditional probability of uh, one particular outcome. And just like we can take linear regression and push through some math to turn that into a kernelized Bayesian method in the form of Gaussian process regression, we could do a very similar thing to turn logistic regression into a Gaussian process classifier. And essentially, we do the same kind of trick. We take the random function that we would get from a Gaussian process, and we squash that through a logistic function to make it now a random function between 0 and 1. This has the nice property that we can now think about this possibly curvy and funky uh, decision boundary that's formed by this random function that doesn't have any doesn't require a single finite basis and allow us to have complicated shapes rather than simple linear shapes surrounding say uh, cats versus dogs in in whatever feature space we uh, we choose just like logistic regression can also be generalized to multiple classes via like the softmax function we can um, do the same trick with Gaussian processes where perhaps we have now a collection of Gaussian processes and we use them to have you know, multiple different outcomes and uh, you know, through this exponentiate and then normalize type, type approach. Also, just like general classification, there are other models like the so-called probit model that has a different function for squashing things between 0 and 1 and, and a slightly different interpretation. We can do the same thing with Gaussian processes as well. So just about everything that you might think of where you would have sort of a Bayesian linear model and then some uh, interesting likelihood function connecting that latent function to, to data, we could do the same thing with a Gaussian process and push a lot of the math through. Just like I should say, in the linear, you know, the linear case as well, the actual computations associated with inference become a little bit more obnoxious whenever you do this, like um, this, like logistic function case. So rather than everything being really simple linear algebra, it's now kind of linear algebra plus uh, a variety of approximations depending on what you what you want to do. Uh, so that is to say that there's not a simple closed form solution in the Gaussian process classification case. Instead, you have to either do something like the so-called Laplace approximation, where you look at the uh, curvature of the posterior distribution to decide uh, to make a Gaussian approximation. There's also a popular approach based on the idea of a um, 
expectation propagation where you form a, a Gaussian uh, estimate of this posture distribution over functions, but you kind of do it in an interesting iterative way to build up, uh, to build up an approximation as well as more traditional variational Bayesian methods. Um, and of course, things like Markov chain Monte Carlo. More recently, there's been some really interesting advances actually in Markov chain Monte Carlo for things like logistic regression based on this, an idea of polya gamma augmentation. It's a really cool kind of auxiliary variable trick where you sort of throw some other, some very, very special additional variables into the model. And then when you do that, sort of everything becomes happy and Gaussian again. It's a really, a really fun trick that's kind of just emerging. Um, as a way to do uh, efficient inference and these kinds of models and other related models like uh, where you have binomial observations and negative binomial observations and things like that. So it's a little bit more complicated, but it's definitely doable and people, people do it all the time. And, and as I said, it's nice because you can have this probabilistic interpretation and can represent the uncertainty in the functions that, um, that you know, are revealed by your data. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Professor Michael Lippmann of Brown University. And we asked him the same question we ask all of our interview guests first. How did you get where you are? Well, I took a plane, interestingly, that actually went from Rhode Island, where I'm living now, to Washington, D.C. before going to Montreal, which seems like exactly the wrong direction. <laughs> and um, how did you get where you are academically? What's been your, your, oh, your path? Oh, so my path? Okay, so sure. So so how far, how far back do you want to go? So, so when I was... 13, I thought I would be a doctor, in particular an otolaryngologist, because the ear bone seemed so cool. And uh, and then I got, instead of a bar mitzvah, I got a computer. And I didn't really like interact with people for an additional two years <laughs> as I was training myself to be a computer scientist. And when I came out of that, it was like, wow, this is, this is really awesome. And so uh, I went to college, uh, Yale University, and I studied computer science. And when I was done that, I thought, okay... That's all the computer science I really need to know. I want to study cognitive science. I want mm. to move on and understand how how brains do their thing, how people think. And um, so I joined a cognitive science research group, actually, at what was then called Belcor. It was a spinoff of the, the U.S. phone companies. And um, worked half with psychologists and half with computer scientists. And I discovered... One thing, which is I'm a computer scientist. <laughs> so <laughs> I love, I'm still totally a psychology groupie. I hang around with them as much as I can. And, and uh, in my current position, I'm getting to collaborate with some folks. But um, yeah, I view, view the world the way computer scientists view the world. And so it, it's much more comfortable for me to do that. So I, I got my PhD in computer science at Brown. I went and became a professor in a couple different places. And actually now I'm back at Brown as a professor. And um, you, you focus a lot on reinforcement learning. Yes, exactly so. So so when I was an undergrad and I was starting to do little projects in neural networks, this was now, what, the 80s, which was the previous time that neural networks were awesome. Um, and so uh, that's all that people were talking about. And I was trying to connect the the notion of what neural networks do with the notion that I was mostly interested in, which was behavior and decision making. And so I kind of stumbled upon this notion of reinforcement learning that was being talked about and thought, wow, I, I really want to know more about that. And um, one of my uh, one of my mentors from when I was at Belcor actually said, "Oh, well, if you want to learn more about that, we'll just invite Rich Sutton to come give a talk." And he's one of the the biggest names in that field. And so, as a you know fresh out of college kind of kid, I got to I got to meet him and and talk about research with him, and it was really cool. 
And so that's kind of been my path all along. It's reinforcement learning straight through. So so you said you mentioned the, the the last time neural networks were cool, and now that neural networks are cool again, <laughs> they're so cool they're right so now. Cool right now. How have you seen your research change as neural networks were super cool, and then were not so cool, and now are so, totally amazing again? <laughs> yeah. So you know, certainly some of my early work, uh, the the learning was happening in the context of a neural net. When I finished, let's see, where was this? So that was when I was at Belcourt and, and neural nets were big and everybody in my group was doing something with neural nets in some way for, for speech or for, for story understanding or for recognition. And for us, it was about decision-making. Um, and then I went to, when I was in graduate school, I was with somebody who was much more pro, uh, you know, AI is a good thing. So mm. at Belcourt, it was AI is a bad thing. And then when I was working with Leslie Helbling at Brown, AI was a good thing. And so I started to have a I don't know, I guess a, a more expansive kind of view. I like to think of, of reinforcement learning as a problem and neural networks are a potentially a valuable way of doing some of the low-level computation in that framework. Mm-hmm. But you still have to think about, well, the biggest thing that I think about all the time is feedback. How does a system get feedback about its performance so that it can actually adapt and get better? And so from that perspective, you know, neural nets, not neural nets, maybe not so important. And and what I'm seeing is, yeah, I mean, the, the, the deep networks are bringing some new properties to what can be extracted from the sensory information. But at the same time, now these this new set of people is running into the same set of problems that we've been, you know, bashing our heads against since the 90s. And, and we have some answers to some of these things. And um, so it looks like it could be a very fruitful time to start uh, exchanging ideas between these two communities. Nice. And so what questions are you looking at right now? What's uh, what's the current flow of your research? So so there's really two things. And I, I told somebody recently these two things, and they said, really, that's just one thing. So here's, here's <laughs> the two things. So one is is learning from people. So um, the, the classic structure in reinforcement learning is – well, maybe it starts with a person. A person writes a reward function, kind of an objective function. This is what this is what is considered good for my agent. And then the agent is released into its environment and it's interacting with its environment and trying out different decisions and measuring its performance with respect to this reward function, trying to get ever more reward. So, um, you know, what we get to do as people in picking the task is engineering that reward function. It turns out people, at least regular people, are not very good at that. It's very difficult to, to not make reward functions that have loopholes in them. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's not so different from, oh, I don't know, like a, like a teacher creating a grading system in a class and then having all the students kind of game the system in various mm. ways. And you get, Well, I got these points. Like, I didn't really learn anything, but look, I got all the points I had. Right. The reinforcement learning systems are very good at that. People are very bad at preventing it. Um, but people do have some experience with providing feedback to systems. We, we teach our kids. We teach our pets. Uh, some pets are more receptive than others. Some <laughs> kids are more receptive than others. Um, but e- either way, we, we actually have kind of a, a, a pretty deep intuition about how to give feedback and how to get other systems to learn. And so I'm, I'm with, a, with a bunch of colleagues that I'm working with um, trying to get people back in that loop so that uh, a person wants to train the system to do something. Like I have this system, I have this robot, and I want it to go and you know, perform this task in my home, I could be a programmer and I could write code to do it. Or if I'm a regular person, maybe I can train it. I can actually, you know, give it positive and negative feedback, show it what it did wrong, you know, gently mm-hmm. scold it if it didn't work <laughs> out. And uh, and over time, get to the point where the system is actually doing the things that I want without me having to have, you know, written a line of code. Done all that stuff for it. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned robotics. You're you're involved in uh, starting a, a center that focuses on robotics, yes? Yeah. So the Humanity-Centered Robotics Initiative, so HCRI. And it's about, 
Well, what we try to focus on is is robots that work with people for the benefit of people. Hmm. And so, and Brown University is a particular, you know, as a, as a school, it's kind of culture, it's zeitgeist, is very much about um, connecting with the world at large. And so we, we think we're not going to be able to compete directly with MIT and CMU and Georgia Tech and USC with all their amazing robot stuff and Stanford. But um, but we can maybe get that human element going uh, in a way that that's not really their focus. Hmm. So is this is, is the idea um, uh, intelligent prosthetics or um, is it... Can you elaborate a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um so so we actually do have a project at at Brown called Braingate which is very much about brain controlled prosthetics. Mm. The the focus of of HRI has been more um well it's 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 not necessarily any specific topic. We are we are talking to people in in healthcare. Um we're talking about uh, helping the elderly with you know physical tasks, with cognitive tasks. We are looking into uh, the potential of robotic counselors for alcohol use, wow. um, which turns out to be a big thing at Brown, uh, sadly. And, um, and one of the things that we've, we've learned from the, from the community that's really interesting is that people are often more obedient, more responsive to robots than they are to like an app. Like they see huh. something on the screen and it tells them what to do, you know, maybe they'll do that. But if, a, if the robot there tells them what to do, they're, they're more likely to actually follow those instructions. And so from that perspective, when people make promises like i'm you know i would like to cut back on my drinking and here's you know i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna vow to do that we believe that that vow is going to be kept more consistently uh if they make that vow to a robot as opposed to an app as a psychology groupie i'm gonna ask you to speculate do you think this has anything to do with embodiment i do think it has i think it has everything to do with embodiment yeah i mean so much of of how we are as people is is grounded in not just the fact that we're physical beings in the physical world but that we're social beings and Mm. and that we're we're connected with the other people mostly who are around us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when when I, I was doing a little bit of background research and I came across the Robotics Institute, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, but the immediate thing that came to my mind is, oh no, it's going to have all the people who are upset about Im- robots with embodied artificial intelligence, that they're worried that they're going to be mean to humans. Um, how are you dealing with that? Yeah, well, so the, so one of the reasons that I think that, that, that a lot of us are motivated to be involved in creating this initiative is, is specifically issues like that. Um, the, there are absolutely negative consequences that are happening with automation, um, AI, robotics, learning. They're doing all sorts of things uh, that, that are having impacts on society and really addressing those head on and, and engaging with the, the people in the humanities, the people in economics, mm. people in sociology, the people in psychology um, who think about these issues and trying to, you know, try to do the right thing, try to really understand what are the negative impacts, how can we mitigate the neg- negative impacts. Um you know, we we had uh, we had a, a nice symposium last spring actually, where a bunch of people came and talked about social implications of robotics, and one of the the keynote speaker uh, actually talked about this this notion that we're automation and robotics and and computation more generally are really being very helpful in getting uh, you know making things more efficient uh, mm-hmm. economically, but it's not been very effective at actually having that the benefits of that shared across the population. It's mm. actually helping the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, hollowing out the middle. And I, I remember sitting there in the audience thinking, wow, I mean, there's two ways to take this. One is we need to stop making robots. And the other one is, no, actually robots are a net gain if you average over the entire society. What we need to do is focus on making sure that those gains are shared more equally, that people need to value each other 
yeah. uh, and not just money. Right, right. So how 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 do you get people to value each other and not just money? <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, no. I mean, you know, the hope is that that we can. I mean, people are people. People are actually human beings, and and mm. and they can be um, they can be persuaded to do the right thing for each other. Mm. Um, I think that if, if it's framed the right way, people will realize that they're you know, this choice is going to have a negative impact on the people that they love. And this choice is going to have a positive impact and, uh, you know, make the choice. Mm-hmm. You just have to spread that empathy as far as you can, I guess. That's the thought. Yeah. I mean, some of, one of my, my postdoc, James McGlashan was actually, I, I mentioned that to him recently and he said, yeah, there's some scholars are actually starting to get down on empathy. They're, they're actually, it's not empathy, it's compassion. Huh. So, so empathy is the idea that you're actually feeling everybody else's pain and that can actually lead you to do all sorts of things that are not necessarily, uh, moving things in the right direction yeah. you know, you're you're feeling it and, it and it matters to you and that's good but at the same time you want to be smart about it and actually push things in a good direction so mm. so maybe compassion but i mean it's i mean i'm a computer scientist right so this is not where i excel <laughs> i mean not that i'm not a compassionate person but like i don't study compassion and i don't study how to how to influence large groups of people i mean so that's not i don't think that's ever going to be my focus in in the initiative but we are trying to engage with a, a broader set of scholars who who really can take on some of those issues. Excellent. So what are you most excited about in this initiative? What is what is your focus? Yeah, so I, I mentioned before there was two kind of research topics that I've been focusing on. Uh, and I, I mentioned one was, was having people in the loop for training these systems so that they can get the systems to do what they want them to do. It's mm-hmm. more personalized. Yeah. And then the, the other piece of that, which maybe is the same piece of that, is thinking very much about, if, if you think about cognition, if you think about the way that people learn it's not like the way machine learning learns right so in in a zillion ways but one in particular one is that your typical machine learning application some smart engineer sets up a situation that says we're going to take this kind of input and produce this kind of output we've collected this kind of training data that's going to be used to map them together we train the heck out of the system until it does what it's supposed to do and then we freeze it Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, you know, you learn to do handwriting as a kid and then we freeze you and that's all you can ever do. <laughs> right. So but what we what we as human beings do is is build on what we've learned. Mm-hmm. And so not a lot of our algorithms really do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not directly. And so uh, so I'm yeah, I'm very excited about the idea of studying algorithms that uh, can continue to learn over time, that they, they can take what they know, they can build better onto that. They can be taught. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, we'll teach the system to do this particular activity. And then when it tries to solve this other problem, that's now available to it as a, as a subtask, right? As a subroutine that it's already learned. Right. And I, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but also one of the problems here would be that computers are generally, and machine learning algorithms are generally correct or incorrect. And, and humans are love to do incremental, incrementally incorrect learning and, and build until they get close to what is right what they think is right yes well so and i would say that a little bit differently which is that the task itself is a moving target right Ah, that we start off saying well we're going to master this partial task Mm -hmm. and then once we've mastered that we can actually build up to using that to master a more comprehensive task and then maybe ultimately you know now my teenage son can drive right (laughs) we didn't jump there all in one step there was a lot of steps along the way and that isn't yeah typically that's not what we do with in machine learning machine learning we set up the objective and then we try to create a system that 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 meets that objective. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to ask you about um, Proverb. I, I know this is sort oh, wow. of a throwback, <laughs> but uh, can you describe that work there? Oh, sure. So so uh, back when I was a professor at Duke, um, uh, one of the graduate students in the CS department came up to me. Uh, this is Greg Keim. And he said, 
I've been collecting lots of crossword puzzles online. This was now the early <laughs> days of the internet, and and um, he was noticing that lots of places were actually posting crossword puzzles. He's like, I, so I've started collecting them, and now I've got. 350,000 crossword clues along with their answers. Surely we can do something with this. And so so we brainstormed the idea of uh, forming a, a little crack team. Uh, about 13 of us did a seminar together where we were going to build a system that can solve crossword puzzles. Uh, like people in the sense that it goes from the, the clues in the empty grid and fills in the grid, but not like people in that, well, it's a big, hairy program that was running on like 15 different computers at the same time. And um, and it, it 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 went really really well. So so um, the the three principals in that were me and Greg Keim and Noam Shazir. Noam went on to join Google and created their spelling corrector that everybody oh, knows wow. and loves. Yeah, yeah. So the did you mean that's that's Noam. Um, Greg went to become the technical director of Rosetta Stone. So wow. um, so actually helping people to learn foreign languages and providing the right kind of software, you know, d- dialogue system and testing to 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 help people learn quickly. Um, and then I, you know, you, I already told you my path, so <laughs> that is what it is. <laughs> and you, you also do a lot of teaching through through MOOCs for these massively organized online classes, um, and and you create music videos for them. <laughs> yeah, I really like music spoofs. I don't know why. I think I think I grew up watching. Um, Schoolhouse Rock. Oh Did you yeah, know Schoolhouse yeah, Rock? of course. So so uh, I know I found it like I can say the 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 prologue to the U.S. Constitution yep. um, because I can sing it in my head because that was something that I learned when I was a kid from from Schoolhouse Rock. And so I always found that to be a really, really engaging way to, uh, I don't know, just gain more familiarity, more time on task with, with some hard problems or mm-hmm. at least hard things to remember otherwise. And so, um, yes, yeah, so when, I, when I was at uh, AT&T Labs, I got to teach as an adjunct a course at Princeton at the end of the course I'm like I want something to kind of pull it all together like they're not going to see me anymore I'm not really a professor here but I just want to kind of cap it off and so I, I wrote um, a summary this was like now to help them prepare for the final uh-huh. I wrote a summary of everything we covered in the class to the tune of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire <laughs> Um, and then I got up in class and I sang it to them and there was just Excellent. sort of this dumbfounded silence as the class just looked at me is he serious yeah. what does what what just happened? Um, so over the years, as I teach classes, I've actually been kind of uh, honing this a lot. So one thing that I discovered is I shouldn't sing live because then my voice gets all wavery. <laughs> like I'm, per- I'm, I'm, I'm okay singing. I like to sing. I'm okay speaking in front of classes, but singing in front of classes, mm. I just. <laughs> um, so I pre-recorded, and then I realized, okay, it's even better if there's like visuals. So then I started to fold visuals into it. And uh, it's even better if I'm like not in the room while they're watching it <laughs> because I, just, I start to sweat profusely and uh, it's all very uncomfortable. Uh, but I've done I think seven or eight now. They're they're all available on YouTube. You can you can check them out. What's your favorite one? Ah, uh, well, the, uh, <laughs> you know they're all my children. I love them. I love them equally, except some of them didn't turn out so well. Um, no, the ones that I so the ones that have been popular. The very first one, oh sorry, the very first one that I did as a recording mm. was about the binary number system. This was for an intro c- computer science class that I was teaching at Rutgers to the tune of Octopus's Garden by the Beatles, nice. and um, that one still remains one of the most beloved. I think that uh, I have both both of my kids who are much younger then uh, did vocals on it, and um, I don't know. People seem to like it. They share it. I, it's 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 gone. You know, as viral as anything I could create has gone viral. Um, 
I really like the, I did one about the halting problem, you know, the halting problem. (laughs) (laughs) And that one was really fun. It was to the tune of Billy Joel's The uh, Piano Man. And it just was just loaded. Like every line was various kinds of self-contradictions of different sorts. Um, And actually kind of a proof of the halting problem is in the song, in the lyrics of the song, um, in the context of somebody making a bar bet actually because uh, you know Panaman is in a yeah that's right so it, it worked on a bunch of levels it's, it's not the most entertaining but I, I find find it to be clever uh, one that, that apparently you might have heard of is uh, is in the machine learning space uh, Charles Isbell and I did a MOOC a couple years ago for for Georgia Tech's um, online master's program that's sponsored both by AT&T and uh, Udacity hmm. and uh, this was a class on machine learning general machine learning we thought okay here's what we need to do we need to do something on overfitting like that's the thing that people need to remember about machine learning when they move on and so um, yeah so I, we took the the song thriller from Michael Jackson and we changed all the words to being about various spooky things that happen in machine learning when you, uh, when, you when you overfit it's a I bad love that thing image of, of, of the zombie <laughs> horde as as overfitting that's amazing yeah and I, I thought we would do it like as an animation or something but the the audacity folks said oh no no no, you have to do this live we're gonna do it with like an acapella group and we're gonna move your heads around in like a grid and um, and so they did that and so they actually hired acapella singers from Georgia Tech to, to, wow. to be my backup singers and um, it was it was super fun it was the most you know, one of the more technically advanced uh, video productions that I've ever been a part of. Excellent. Have you ever done one where you pitched the idea to one of your graduate students or a partner and they're like, no, Michael, it will never work. You can't, you can't sing about overfitting Michael Jackson. That's insane. Um, I get called insane a lot. Um, on that particular topic, people generally give me a fair amount of leeway, though. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, well, sometimes you'll get the, Oh, <laughs> that could work. How are you imagining that exactly? That's a great idea. Uh, but usually I discard, you know, dozens of ideas before I get one. And I'm like, yeah, I think I can make this go through. Excellent. Are you working on one now? So so for the current class, we're doing a reinforcement learning class, Charles and I. And we, I wrote a rap because oh. um, Charles really likes epic rap battles of history. It's a, it's a web thing. Um, and so I wrote an epic rap battle of history supervised learning versus machine learning oh man yeah who do you have to represent supervised learning so, and machine learning <laughs> so so charles charles is a very powerful personality and it, the class is about reinforcement learning and he declared that he would be reinforcement learning ah. so that left me to be supervised learning excellent yeah. excellent well i you know when it drops you'll have to let us know because <laughs> all of our listeners are going to want to see that i'm sure uh, okay yeah we'll, we'll try we'd see it was really hard to get the class together and then we kind of ran out of energy um but the lyrics are written the music i think is written to but charles says i'm not allowed to practice the rap until he teaches me more how to rap because that's not been a thing that i've done (laughs) (laughs) gotta gotta strengthen your rap background i think i need a little bit more yeah supervised rap learning yes (laughs) or something reinforcement Reinforcement rap learning learning. no (laughs) not that you've got no flow man so um yeah i hear that occasionally Michael Lippman of Brown University. It's always just wonderful to talk to him. He's fantastic. Yeah, in addition to being a great researcher, he's such a character. It's super fun. Totally. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. You've got some data. I need to find a rule that can predict. You want a theta that works for any instance that you pick. It's Bellman's Curse, the classifier needs to fit the labels.